Good morning and happy Valentine's Day. I appreciate Pastor X giving me another opportunity to preach here at Naperville Evangelical Covenant Church. I just finished the five-week Sunday school series on the book of 1 Peter. So Pastor X asked me uh, to preach a message that would sort of give an overview of the book and, uh, and how it might relate to our lives today. But before I get into that, I just want to give a quick shout out, a word of appreciation for Pastor X, Pastor Kelly, Pastor Josiah. You know, I started pastoral ministry in 1987 and left to become a full-time professor in 2018. So over 30 years working for churches, and I can only imagine the challenges of being a pastor during a pandemic. So God bless you. Let's take a moment to pray. Lord, we give you thanks because you're good and your mercies endure forever. And I pray, Lord God, you would help us to learn from your word today, but not just learn so that our heads are filled with more knowledge, but that we would be motivated to live in a way that gives you glory, that brings honor to our Lord Jesus. So I pray, Lord God, that you would fill me with your spirit, empower me to preach the truth of your word. Guide us, O thou great Jehovah. We're pilgrims in this barren land. We're weak, but you're mighty. Hold us with your powerful hand and bread of heaven. Feed us till we want no more. Amen. Well, while the challenges of pastoring are unique, all of us need to think seriously about what it means to claim Christian identity in these times. I mean, how do we represent Jesus well during a pandemic? How do we articulate and practice justice for all of God's creation? What does it look like to not gloss over racial injustice? In what ways can we address political realities, especially with the level of agitation that we're facing? And what does it mean to be a Christian at a time when the followers of Jesus are so divided, especially here in the USA? There are so many questions, and I commend you all for always striving to find the answers to these persistent questions. But let's remember that the journey is, well, nearly as important as the destination. This is to say that we live as God's people day after day, and how we live is more important than what we might seem to think, because our destination, while it's heavenly, we don't need to make the journey more hellish than it already is. And I can say hellish in church because the word hell is in the Bible. <laughs> We want God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done on earth, which impacts how we live right now, how we live as disciples, as believers, as followers, as members of God's household. That's an expression that Peter uses. How we live matters more to God than your ability to recite the right doctrinal statement. I believe that the message of first Peter addresses how we represent Jesus in a world that does not know the Lord. In the USA, white Protestant evangelicals have enjoyed a degree of social hegemony, which is to say that they have had a favored status. I mean, experts have made this point for a long time, how being Christian and being American meant essentially the same thing for some people. Their nationality, their religion, essentially the same. They cannot separate their citizenship from their faith, pledging allegiance to the flag, the same as pledging allegiance to Jesus. 
I once had a seminary student in class exclaim that soldiers who die in combat are martyrs because he made military service to the nation equal to Christian discipleship. Christian holidays are prominent in our country. For a long time, people could make Bible references in almost any context outside of the church and expect that people would understand the reference. There were so-called blue laws that restricted certain activities. In fact, when Susan and I moved to Minnesota and I was serving at the Sanctuary Covenant Church, you couldn't buy alcohol on a Sunday. I mean, that's part of the influence that white Christians have had to even impact the economy. And white Christianity enjoyed this social prominence. And right now, many white Christians are actually demonstrating considerable discomfort when their views don't take center stage. And they're not sure how to act when their way of being is confronted with other notions of what it means to follow Jesus. And, and that challenge, to a large degree, is coming from people who have been on the margins. So Peter now is writing to people who do not have the luxury of being prominent in society. Peter writes to people who are under scrutiny. Peter writes to people whose lives are in a precarious position. Peter's readers are not under official government persecution at this time. There will be persecution uh, a few years down the road. But at the time of this letter, Peter's readers are facing hassles and slander alienation and judgment and social isolation because of their faith. His readers are suffering. One question that the letter of 1 Peter addresses is, how should Christians think and act within a culture that's hostile toward them? And 1 Peter addresses the lives of Christians who are being alienated by the broader culture. Let's see how Peter opens the letter. He says right at the beginning, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. These first readers of the letter carried this status of alien, stranger, members of the diaspora, dispersion, a status that indicated their marginal existence and their conflict with non-Christians. Peter's people could not be at home in the world because the world became hostile to them. That's the precarious situation of anyone on the margins. And of course, we cannot get into all the themes of this letter in one sermon, but I do hope to highlight basically three notions that show up and are related to each other. And the three themes that I'm going to stress are alienation, hope while suffering, and unity. Those three things, alienation, hope in the midst of suffering, and unity. As for alienation, First Peter makes the point that some Christians are like immigrants throughout time. They are socially disconnected from the dominant culture. They are diaspora people, people disconnected from their real home. Scholars have used that term diaspora to describe the situation of displaced people for years. I mean, consider, for example, African-Americans. I remember years ago, a prominent Christian magazine, actually several of them, but I think of Christianity Today in particular, had advertisements for people to find their family crest. 
which works for white evangelicals to trace their family lineage to Europe. But for people like me, we don't know where our family came from. In fact, we're named for a whole continent and not a country, African-American. That's part of diaspora status, being alienated from one's home. And Peter's first readers may not have all been literally displaced people, but the experience of displaced people describes what it means to be a Christian in the world. Diaspora is alienation. Diaspora is a fragile social situation. Listen to how the theologian Willie Jennings describes diaspora when it, in terms of what it meant and what it can mean even now. Diaspora means scattering and fragmentation, exile and loss. It means being displaced and in search of a place that could be made home. Danger and threat surround diaspora life. The peoples who inhabit diaspora live with animus and violence filling the air they breathe. They live always on the verge of being classified enemy, always an evaluation of their productivity to the empire, always having an acceptance on loan, ready to be taken away at the first sign of sedition. They live with fear as an ever-present reality, a partner in their lives, the fear of being turned into a them, a dangerous other, those people among us. To know what it means to live for Jesus in a world that does not understand you or appreciate your faith or your way of life, to understand that and to know it don't look to the dominant culture. Don't look to the powerful. Don't look to those with special status. If you want to see Jesus, look to those on the margins. Diaspora Christians who have no or limited social status best exemplify the faith of Jesus who was himself a marginalized Jew. So I have noted that one theme of 1 Peter is that of alienation. As members of the diaspora, Peter's readers are vulnerable. And that leads right into another theme of 1 Peter, hope while suffering. Continuing on in chapter 1, Peter writes these words, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In this section, verses 3 through 9, Peter says that with the new birth, we have a living hope, which is to say that we don't wish for some imaginary pie in the sky. We wait with confidence for what God has in store. And what God has in store 
is our inheritance. Some people inherit houses, money, or some other possession, and that's all good. But Peter says that our inheritance isn't like those temporal things. Our inheritance cannot be destroyed in any way. Furthermore, our inheritance is part of our salvation. Salvation is something that becomes complete in the future. After Jesus comes back and wraps up history as we know it, then our salvation will be complete. In the meantime, we may have to face trials. And your faith gets stronger through trials. Some people like to say what doesn't kill us makes us, makes us stronger. Well, we hope so. Our faith is shown to be real when it gets tested. And Peter uses this imagery of the refiner's fire. You know, back in Peter's time, the most valuable metal was gold. And enslaved people would dig gold out of the mines, but gold was attached to other minerals. To get pure gold, you had to turn up the heat so that the impurities could be separated from the pure gold. Sisters and brothers, our trials, our struggles, or like the heat of the refinery, our impurities can get burned off. Our faith gets purified. Peter says our faith is more precious than gold. The story of black people in America is one of faith forged through the fires of suffering. But black history is not just about looking back to the hard times. It's about realizing that black people are among the most remarkable people in the world. Africa had been ravaged by imperialism but it rises like a phoenix from the ashes. Black people of the diaspora have faced legal discrimination, hatred, marginalization, abuse, homicide, all manner of attempts to destroy us, but still we rise. Our faith has sustained us. Our faith is more than superficial church attendance. Our faith has been rooted in a reality that Jesus knows us, is with us, has given us new life, new hope, and an inheritance that can never be stripped away. We can learn what hope through suffering is by looking, for example, at African-American Christian experiences. Now, I mentioned alienation. I just mentioned hope and suffering. And I have another point to make. It's Peter's emphasis on unity. I'd like to take a look at chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. Peter says there, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture, it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Alienated people 
who find hope in the midst of suffering also strive to create a new community. Peter says in this passage that God's people are living stones. You know, in my last three years at the Sanctuary Covenant Church, we made the commitment to stop meeting in schools and to find a place that could be a resource to our neighbors as well as a place for us to gather. The congregation heard me say many times over the years that even though we put lots of time, energy, and money into getting a building, it wasn't because we believe the building is the church. We, the people, are the church. The pandemic has reminded us of what true Christians should know. The church is not a building. However, the the pandemic has also demonstrated how a building is a very important part of our ability to do ministry. A building can be vitally necessary to living out our calling as the people of God. So I don't want to minimize how significant a church building is. But at the same time, I want to emphasize what we could miss, that we together are God's house. Together, we represent Jesus to this world in the building and also outside the building. The spiritual house is a place where God dwells, like the temple was. And believers are not on the outside looking into the house, but are the very stones that make up the house. We are the house of God. God dwells among us. Jesus is the cornerstone, the very foundation of this house. And as living stones, we share in the ministry of the living stone, Jesus who was rejected by many people, but was chosen by God as precious to God, we also are chosen and precious to God. Humanity in general might reject us, but we are precious to God. All who believe in Jesus will never be put to shame, and the one who believes need never fear humiliation and judgment. What good news! for people who are being constantly humiliated by those around them. Maybe some of you experience the same weird tension that I do, or at least I did before the pandemic. When I, when I meet a new person, say like when I'm on an airplane and the person next to me is chatty, <laughs> I eventually get asked, what do you do? The tension is that I didn't always want to say I'm a pastor. That was a surefire way to watch the person's facial expression change, (laughs) put an end to the conversation, which isn't so bad if I wanted to take a nap. Some people, when they find out you're a pastor, they all of a sudden start watching their language like, like pastors never heard curse words before. But identifying oneself as a Christian these days is tricky. The word evangelical is politically loaded. Some Christians don't like the word disciple because it sounds too religious. And even the word Christian can stir up negative reactions in people because of remember, instead of remembering all the good things that Christians have done through the centuries, modern people often picture us as being self-righteous, hypocritical, anti-education, bigoted, politically narrow, and even stingy. And I could go on. As living stones built on Jesus, the foundation stone, we should represent him in this world. Would we call Jesus self-righteous or hypocritical? No. Would we call him wishy-washy? No. 
My point is that we learn to be more like Jesus, and as a spiritual house, we will be better representatives of Jesus. We are God's house, representing him to the world. We are a safe haven for people who need to be loved. We shed light for those who are in in darkness. We bring truth to those who have been deceived. We bring healing to those who have been damaged in body and spirit. We bring good news to those who have been beat down, demoralized, ostracized, minimized, marginalized, and demonized. We show people that it is worth it to put their trust in Jesus. And as Peter says, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. When we had the Sanctuary Covenant Church's new building dedicated a few years back, one of the speakers talked to us about our corporate identity. He was the only speaker who actually discussed the building itself, and he connected it to our identity. He then took us to this very passage in 1 Peter. He actually appreciated my commentary, and one of the reasons he went to 1 Peter was sort of a little uh, um, wink in my direction. But he also wanted to make a powerful point. And then he used the old King James version of this passage to make his point, because there it uses the word peculiar. The NIV says God's special possession in verse 9. The NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, says God's own people. And you'll find variations of that kind of expression in different English translations. But the old King James says peculiar people. To contemporary ears, the word peculiar may trigger synonyms such as bizarre, eccentric, odd. And that might be how some people view the Christian community. Certainly that was the case in Peter's time. But perhaps even today, we could still use that old King James Version word peculiar and think of other synonyms to apply to ourselves. Other synonyms for peculiar like curious, exceptional, extraordinary, remarkable, mysterious. These words suggest that God's people are an intriguing group that lives in such a good way that we invite the interest of onlookers. I mean, there there are other words in this passage here, chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation. I mean, these words indicate how special we are to God and that we represent him as priests in this world. We are holy and that we are set apart because of our devotion to God. Think about it for a moment. How do we represent God in this world? Do you think it's through our politics? Is it through our money? Is it through our social status? Peter's people represented Jesus to the world by having no special status. They witness for Jesus while on the margins. They witness for Jesus through suffering. Peter's first letter shows us that together as living stones, we represent Jesus to the world and we do it like he did in humility with the power and direction of the Holy Spirit as a demonstration of God's love for the world. How will we show God's love and communicate God's truth to our neighbors? That is always a question that I hope Christians think about together. 
In America, church has become a spectator sport. Most people just watch. And I don't, I don't mean just during the pandemic when we have to watch. People want the music in general to entertain us. They want the preacher to put on a show. They, they want the children's department to keep our kids stimulated and do, do all kinds of teaching that we might not have the time or energy or creativity to do. We, we sometimes leave that show and then go on living the same way we had been living before we saw the show. And, and for some people, if they don't like the show, they move on to a church that has a better show. Now, I don't mind saying that I've grown weary of America's consumer attitude toward church. The people the Apostle Paul wrote to could never imagine what church has become in that regard. So I want to challenge you to get involved at church, in church, with the church, because you're part of the church. Volunteer energy, it's not busy work. It's ministry that creates the that communicates a reality that Jesus is with us and among us. It, it communicates the reality of Jesus to, to those who are watching from the outside. Every ministry team needs people to be involved. And we need each other because together we represent Jesus to our neighbors. Not just the pastors. Not just the building. All of us together, energized by the spirit, fortified by God's word, demonstrates to the world that God is real. So God bless you, peculiar people. Live in such a way, as Peter would say, that even unbelievers would see the goodness in our lives and give God the glory. Lord, we thank you for your word. Oh, there is so much in this letter called 1 Peter. And we only can imagine what those early followers of Jesus lived like and what they endured. But we are grateful that the words written to them are preserved for us to read and to figure out how we can go and do likewise, how we can live for you in tough times, in difficult times, and even when our voices are not prominent. I pray, Lord God, by the power of your spirit, you would be at work here in Naperville Evangelical Covenant Church and all churches who are clinging tenaciously to Jesus in these days. Holy Spirit, have your way. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. We pray with thanksgiving and expectation. Amen. God bless you.